The No Filter Podcast, produced by students at the New Zealand Broadcasting School. Coming up on the No Filter Podcast this week, we talk to Green Party co-leader James Shaw, explain the complexities of referendums in Aotearoa, and have a yarn to Benedict Collins about the last scandalous week in politics. Twenty twenty election year. On September nineteen, millions of Kiwis will head to the polling booths to cast their votes and decide who is in charge of Aotearoa for the next three years. People our age, the eighteen to twenty-five year olds of New Zealand, are notorious for not getting amongst the political system. Together we comment, tag, react, and share moments like this. Flushing. Okay, Boomer. My fucking good idea. Get some guts. But pay absolutely no attention to the bland, boring crap like this. Doesn't give my opponents much time to run up to an election, does it? I'm Mitch Redman. And I'm Nick James. And we're here to chat politics with no filter. Welcome to episode four of the No Filter podcast. This week we fled the nest, leaving our lacklustre Zoom studio to interview Greens Party co-leader James Shaw in the flesh. Minister Shaw made an announcement at the University of Canterbury regarding the State Sector Decarbonisation Project, which in simple terms is a fund of $200 million aimed at reducing the carbon footprint of places like schools and hospitals. It's going to be a milestone in our journey, which started some time ago, to move off coal to create a cleaner future for our community. So without further ado, I wish to now it is my privilege to invite Minister Honourable James Shaw to address us. Thank you. Anyway, James Shaw first gave politics a crack in the 2011 election, where he was the Greens candidate for Wellington Central. However, it wouldn't be until 2014 that Minister Shaw would make it to the Beehive. If that wasn't a big enough change for James, he went on for the Green Party co-leadership the following year. An experience he said was bonkers. You may be asking, why co-leadership? Well, in the Greens Party, there are no singular leaders. There is one male leader and one female leader to create a more diverse representation in their party. The Greens were formed in 1990 and are on the left of the political spectrum, combining strong environmental policies with an economy with large state influence and social blankets. While the party was formed 30 years ago, this term is the first time they have actually been in government, meaning that James Shaw isn't just a party leader, but also the Minister for Climate Change, Statistics, and is an Associate Finance Minister. So without further ado, here is Nick James's interview with Greens Party co-leader James Shaw. Up, James. You had quite a lengthy, lengthy career before entering politics, working for, for a few businesses, which people might suggest is quite different to the usual connotations thrown um, at the Greens. Could you talk to us a bit more about this time in your life and how it set you up for politics? Sure. Well, so my first professional job was at the Electricity Corporation of New Zealand back when we had an Electricity Corporation of New Zealand. I then moved to, uh, well, I went with ISEC, the student exchange program, ended up in Belgium and then after that went to Pricewaterhouse in London which shortly thereafter became PwC and then with some friends of mine started 
our own our own consulting firm called Future Considerations, which is still running today. And though I sort of see my political career as a direct l- line from uh, that work because I was working on sustainability in business, um, and particularly the work I was doing at PwC uh, was around. Um, you know how around climate change and how to kind of bend the curve of corporate emissions. Uh, you know other sustainable development issues. I then did a master's program at Bath University, and it was sort of during that that I thought, okay, well, all of the work that we're doing in the private sector is good. Um, some of it's great, uh, but actually it's not going to add up to the scale of the challenge, right? And and there are some things that can only happen as a result of political change. So for me, it was just a logical next step. Sweet. Um, in 2015, uh, you went for the co-party leadership and won. What was that experience like, and what did it teach you? It was bonkers. <laughs> well, the thing, so it, it was a, it was really an odd time because I only got elected to parliament in 2014, and then that was in September, and then in January, Russell Norman, you know, my predecessor, said, "Look, I'm not going to stand again." And then the uh, election was in at the end of May. Um, and so I, I'd only really just arrived. But the Greens, we only change our co-leaders on average about every nine years. Uh, and so I kind of said, well, look, you know, I'll give it a whirl. I wasn't actually anticipating winning. Um, but I thought, I'll never know if I don't try. And then essentially, as we got rolling on the campaign, we had momentum. You know, so there was a sort of a point where we kind of thought, actually, we could we could win this, and then we then we cranked up the effort a bit. It was pretty amazing. So the way the Greens elect our leaders is very different from how other parties do it, where it's a caucus vote. It's a democratic vote of the entire membership, branch by branch. And so we did 36 meetings from Kaikoi in the north through to Invercargill in the south. Bit of a road trip uh, in. Um, electric cars half, yeah. the, half the way and so on. Uh, and and it, it was a really good way to become a party leader because it meant that we had had to engage with our membership as a whole, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all over the country. Uh, and, and I think it set, set me up really well for what was then to come. Awesome. Um, what originally captured your interest in politics growing up? I can tell you the exact moment. <laughs> so I was sitting at the back of my class talking with my friends which was because I was one of those guys uh, and you know that you know that uh, moment when you discover that um, you're the last one talking yeah you know, like you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. sort of realize that the whole room's gone quiet and you're still talking I had exactly that experience right I was like oh, okay <laughs> and then and as I sort of tuned in I heard my teacher say countries go to war over things like this right. and that grabbed my attention mm. Uh, and it was the day after the Rainbow Warrior had been bombed in Auckland Harbour, right? So I was 12, it was 1985, and that kind of, that moment sort of woke me up to what's going on in the world, right? Because up until that point, really I was basically just playing D&D. For those listening who are not up to date on their nerdy lingo, and fair enough, I had to search this up too, D&D stands for Dungeons and Dragons, the medieval role-playing game from the 80s. Just needed to clear that up. Alrighty, back to the interview. You know, and, and, and that was sort of my world. And all of a sudden I became aware of things that were going on in New Zealand and how we were connected to what's going on internationally. So I got really interested in the anti-nuclear movement and, um, uh, you know, the colonisation, um, you know, in the Pacific, um, nuclear testing, all of that 
Greenpeace, um, marine mammals and you know and so on joined Greenpeace uh, and so that that really kind of got me um, that was the thing that politicized me that precise moment next up on the no filter podcast Mitch Redman unravels some of the confusing rules around referendums here is what the f- referendums in this year's election we have two but before we dive into those what actually are they it is a vote on a question. Alongside your party and electoral vote, you will have the opportunity to participate in the referendum. There are a couple of types. One can be started by citizens and the other initiated by the government themselves. Let's have a look first at a citizens referendum. It all starts with a proposal to the clerk of the house about what you're trying to do or what you're trying to change. They're the people that sit in front of the speaker of the debating chamber who wear those stupid looking lawyer wig things. After the proposal has been heard, the public has the opportunity to brainstorm how they think the question should be worded, a process that takes about four months. From that point, the petition organiser has 12 months or a year to go and gather as many votes as possible. 10% of registered voters have to sign the petition for the referendum to then go ahead. In 2017, there were nearly 3.3 million people registered to vote in New Zealand. Therefore, something like 330,000 signatures would be needed for the petition to take place. Now that sounds like a bit of admin. The crazy thing is that even with all those signatures, citizen petitions are indicative only, meaning the government doesn't actually need to act at all. But you would hope with so much support, some sort of action would be taken. Here's a couple of examples. Kate Shepard did it in 1893, giving women the right to vote. And Kiwi Ban Herbs, who sing this song that you may know, helped inspire a nuclear-free New Zealand petition in the 80s. So if they can do it, maybe you can too. However, this year, the two referendums Kiwis will vote on are government-initiated. A government referendum means the question is decided by the House in a legislative manner with no public input needed. There is also the ability for the vote to be binding, or for it to just give an indication. The first referendum on offer is the Cannabis Legalisation and Control Bill. Back in 2017, the Greens told Labour that if they were to form a coalition, an obligation would be for the referendum to take place in this year's election. This vote is binding, but not self-executing, so even if more than 50% of New Zealanders are in favour of change, members of Parliament will still vote on what happens next. The second referendum is the End of Life Choice Bill, which was introduced to Parliament by ACT Party leader David Seymour way back in 2015. After passing the third and final reading in Parliament, New Zealand first suggested that a referendum take place, alongside the Cannabis Bill. Voting yes to the euthanasia referendum will see those suffering from terminal illness or an ongoing decline in physical capability able to end their life. In the next two episodes of the No Filter podcast, we will discuss the ins and outs of these referendums. So to wrap things up, despite being a lengthy and often expensive process, a referendum is a fair, logical way to create discussion which can promote real change within the community. And just moving more into sort of politics and policy, um, just for you know any of the listeners out there who might not know about the Green Party, could you please tell us, um, and for first-time voters obviously, what the Green Party stands for? Well, uh, 
At the level of principle, um, the Green Party is ultimately about people and planet. Um, and we see those things as like a double helix, right? They're intertwined with each other, interconnected. People often say to me, you know, why aren't you just an environmental party? My response to that is you try asking someone who is trying to decide between heating their home and putting food on the table how interested they are in the environment, right? They're not. So you cannot have uh, an environmental, you know, sustainability um, without a sustainable society. So th those are the kind of two things. Um, when it comes to economics, we argue that uh, the world is finite. It's clearly finite. It's a ball. Um, and that as you have a growing population, you therefore run into a challenge of, uh, run, you know, sort of limits of, of growth. And if you accept that principle, the idea that unlimited material growth is actually a physical impossibility, you immediately have to ask questions about how you organise your society and your economy that are different from the way that we've done it over the last 250 years. That's basically what we're about. Sweet. Um, the Green Party recently introduced a policy that would give $325 to every non-full-time working person in Aotearoa. Just to be clear, it's $325 weekly, not just $325 as a one-off payment. That would be pretty stingy. Replacing the student loan and allowance system, um, as many young voters often fit into this bracket, could you talk to us a bit more about this? Sure, it's called the guaranteed minimum income, and it would replace pretty much the entire social safety net that we have at the moment, which is deeply flawed, um, and any student would know that. Uh, and so the idea is that we want to um, ensure that everybody who needs it um, has a level of support that is enough to live on. The amount that we've chosen, 325, is consistent with what the Welfare Expert Advisory Group told us was what was required for people to live above the poverty line. So because we think that the idea that in a wealthy country like Aotearoa there's no excuse for anybody to be poor, or at least live below the poverty line, let's set it at that. Um, and the idea is that that would apply also to students. Um, and so, you know, we want people to be able to move seamlessly, you know, into and out of education and into the workforce. Um, and so what, what the idea of a guaranteed minimum income says is if you need support, it's there and it's available to you. It's not cheap, right? It comes at the total price tag is about $6.5 billion a year. Um, and so we have set up a proposal for how we would pay for that through the tax system. Um, but when you consider that we spend about $14.5 billion a year on superannuation, you know, it's less than half the cost yeah, of that. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's more sort of streamlining the process. Really. Yes, yeah. massively. Because here, here's the ridiculous thing. You have families who are, you know, on the breadline who spend 40 hours a week securing the following week's benefits. Now, they should be spending 40 hours a week trying to get into the workforce, exactly. either by being in education and training mm. or just literally just applying for jobs or, you know, doing part-time work where they can. So the idea behind the guaranteed minimum income, it just says that's there, it's there, you know, for when you need it, um, your resource and your time will be better spent um, getting yourself into the workforce. Recently, the Green uh, Party also introduced the Clean Energy Plan ahead of the election. If this policy was introduced, how would it be beneficial to New Zealand? So the idea behind the Clean Energy Plan is it decarbonises 
our industrial sector. So we use a lot of coal and gas for things like um, meat, uh, curing meats or um, growing tomatoes or most significantly drying milk and turning it into milk powder. That's actually where most of it is at the moment. That's quite low grade heat and it's easily replaceable with either wood chip or, or electricity. So the benefit is that we could rapidly decarbonise our industry and um, through cutting the cost of installation of solar and battery in people's homes in half, um, it'll rapidly increase the amount of solar in the country and that then becomes extra electricity which then gets used as we decarbonise industry, right? So as you decarbonise industry you actually have to grow the amount of generation, uh, electricity generation that we have. Awesome. Um, COVID-19 has taken over 2020 and will be a major player in younger generations for decades to come. Um, could you talk to us a bit more about the measures the Greens have introduced to combat the economic and social, uh, societal, sorry, impact? Yeah, so th- this is something that I've been banging on about since we, in fact, went into lockdown in the first place. We are currently spending um, about the next 15 years' worth of discretionary budgets, right? right? So we're in, in, inside of one parliamentary term. So the way to think about it is we're bringing forward government spending for the next at least next 15 years Mm. and spending it right now. That does a couple of things. One of which is it runs up a very large debt pile, which, congratulations, you get to pay off through your taxes. Um, And what that means is that every dollar that we spend on the stimulus today... And it is entirely appropriate for us to, you know, Mm. have a stimulus. But every dollar that we spend on that stimulus is a dollar you can't spend getting yourself through a crisis 10 years from now. So therefore, the stimulus... Every dollar of the stimulus that we can put to it should be spent on dealing with those long-term intergenerational challenges like climate change, like the housing crisis, like the um, mess of the three waters pipes under pretty much every town in the uh, country, um, like uh, the biodiversity crisis, because all of those things are still there and all of them still have to get paid for. So if we're going to do the equivalent of 15 years of spending all at once, let's spend it on the things that we would be spending it on 15 years from now, as opposed to just a sort of short-term, let's return to the status quo. That's been my kind of, my mantra now for several months. And to me, that's what this election is all about. I know it'll be the Judith and Jacinda show, right? There'll be all of that. But the choice that we're making at this election um, is more significant than any other election that I've been a part of because it's kind of like saying, well, let's do five elections at once, you know, in terms of the choices that we're making about the long-term future of the country. Definitely. Over the last year, uh, climate change marches have been held around Aotearoa and the world and over the past year, particularly featuring young people with the school strike for climate change. Um, Do you think this shows that young people are becoming more and more involved in politics? Well, clearly. Mm. You know, so, I mean, uh, without giving away how old I am, you know, I've seen a few kind of street uh, protests in yeah. my time. The school strikes was astonishing for the sheer scale. Um, the only things that I can remember that were even close in terms of size were the foreshore and seabed, which was, I think, 2004. Um, and before that, probably the Employment Contracts Act in the in the late years of the um, fourth Labour government in the 1980s. I mean, that, you know, to, to the, just the sheer scale of it. And and the fact that it was led by teenagers is also kind of astonishing, right, that they were able to galvanise that level of, of support. And it did make a difference, right, because we had, you know, we know that, um, you know, those kids were then pressuring their parents. Their parents happened to run big companies or, you know, whatever. Um, and so then... You know, the ho- everything started to started to shift. Um, what I hope 
uh, people realise, those who are 18 and older, um, is that the logical extension of that is the ballot box. And for people who are under the age of 18, that they pester their parents, you know, to vote according to how they marched. Um, Now, I just want to finish up by asking you some questions that don't necessarily get the same amount of coverage in the mainstream media. Um, If I can take you back to 2014 and your maiden speech after getting into government as a list MP, you said that you occasionally went to school uh, when you were (laughs) at Wellington High School. What would you generally spend most of that spare time doing? Uh, I... would be fair to say, spent a reasonable amount of my school days playing Dungeons and Dragons with my friends. Yeah, right. Yep, yeah. <laughs> um, yep I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, keeping with the theme of education. Uh, Co- of course, I have to say, it's cool now. Yeah, right? definitely. I, in 1986, yeah. it was not cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but now there's like TV shows about kids playing D&D in 1986, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Exactly. I am Stranger Things. You could, you could audition for one of those shows or something. Like yeah, I'd be like yeah, the Gen X actor yeah. who was, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Around Christmas time, you posted a photo of you sporting a pretty incredible uh, climate change related sweater. Oh. <laughs> um, being in the full brunt of winter at the moment, yeah. have you obtained any similar sweater since? No, no. And in fact, I've been receiving fashion advice from my staff who suggest <laughs> that um, I'm now too old to carry off a sweater look. Right. So, yeah. Right. Um, have you got any alternatives to that? Or? To the Attenborough? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no. No. <laughs> no, no. In fact, in fact, the 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 Attenborough yeah. uh, sweater is in a Ziploc bag <laughs> that comes out once a year yeah. at, at Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Right, no matter yeah. no matter how hot it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. Um, and just to wrap up, um, why should young people who are perhaps kind of disencouraged from politics um, vote at this election? And why do you think that they should party vote green? So, I know that historically governments have let young people down, and but there's a self-reinforcing system here, right? So what happens is the vote tends to skew older, right? So older people vote in greater proportions than younger people do. What that then means is that governments tend to kind of reward older voters and skew government policy towards older voters and away from younger voters, which then disenchants younger voters and so they don't vote. And so you end up in this vicious cycle. The way to stop that is to vote, right? So no matter how disenchanted you are, if young people start getting to the ballot box in large numbers and behaving in ways like voting for parties like the Green Party, um, that will disrupt the system, then you'll start to see change, right? And then you get onto a virtuous cycle. So there's that. Why party vote Green? Because the Green Party is the party in Parliament who is talking about the long-term future, not just the here and now. We are also talking about the here and now, like I was saying before. What we're doing now is going to have an enormous impact. But my my direct experience of other political parties is that they just like fix today's problem, Mm. you know? And yes, those problems need to be fixed. Like I don't have a problem with that. But if we just focus on it by saying let's fix today's problem, you don't leave yourself with the resource to be able to deal with the long-term crises. And those are things that you guys are going to inherit. Mm. And I don't want that. And that was the only Noah man to skip school to play Dungeons & Dragons former environmental businessman and now co-leader of the Green Party, James Shaw. Next up on the No Filter podcast, we talk to Benedict Collins about the past week's political news. This is... The The Week week That Was. 
if we thought we were going to get a break in politics this week, um, we were completely wrong. On Monday, we heard news that Rangitata MP Andrew Falloon was retiring from politics. Um, as the day went on, we found out that he was involved in a bit of a sex text scandal. How do you think the Leader of the Opposition, Judith Collins, handled this situation? Um, I can imagine she would rather have done without that to start her week off. Yeah, you got absolutely right. I mean, Judith had only been in the job a few days. She sort of hit the ground ground running, and she was se- seeming to, you know, sort of clean up the mess that the National Party was in. And then all of a sudden, she gets hit with this scandal, and it, it, it just seemed really weird. We got some emails sort of come through saying he was resigning, that he had mental health issues, and that he was apologising for numerous mistakes, but it didn't really say what those mistakes were. And Judith Collins sort of followed that up with her own. Um, press statement as well, which kind of alluded to, you know, um, unsatisfactory behaviour um, from Andrew Falloon. And as the day went on, it became clearer that, you know, he'd sent pornographic images to a young woman. Um, and then as, as we've seen, it played up throughout the week, um, you know, multiple women, it sounds like he's now been um, sending uh, inappropriate um, messages to uh, with his phone, obviously um, he, he's gone from Parliament and the police have actually reopened um, an investigation into, into his behaviour. I mean, it's absolutely not what uh, Judith Collins would have um, wanted to you know, start her leadership with after what we've seen with the National Party recently, with you know, other MPs behaving poorly um, you know, and num- numerous settings. And of course, the last leader, Todd Muller, sort of, um, disappearing from politics for a while as well. Yeah, not at all. It wasn't the start of the week that um, Judith Collins wanted. But um, then on Tuesday, Judith Collins herself announced that she had received a tip-off about a Labour MP um, who had engaged in some inappropriate workplace behaviour. Um, we saw that one media outlet was referring um, to Ian Lees Galloway as the notorious ILG. Um, he was then sacked by the Prime Minister. How did Jacinda Ardern handle this, and do we think we can expect more of this type of politics to continue leading up to the election? Yeah, that's a, that's a kind of million-dollar question we're all asking ourselves at Parliament as well. Yeah, I, I guess if we just take it back a step, so what Judith Collins had said is that she wanted any anyone else who had been approached by um, or received inappropriate uh, messages from Andrew Falloon to get in contact with her so that, you know, that they could offer them you know, advice or support. And as part of that, someone, a third party, had come forward and alerted them, basically, to the fact that Ian Lee Galloway had been in a relationship um, with someone who worked in one of his agencies. Mm. Now, you know, the, the Prime Minister, clearly she got this information, she called him straight away into her office where he confirmed he'd had a 12-month um, relationship with this woman who, who, at one stage, had also worked in his ministerial office. I don't think the affair was taking place then. It was when she, later when she'd left and moved into an agency. But he kind of had control of, of, of that agency. And, and that's a, you know, a big no-no. I mean, he, he said you know, his behaviour was completely inappropriate and his um, resignation, or um, the Prime Minister sacked him as a um, minister. But you know, he, he admitted it was totally inappropriate. The Prime Minister felt it was totally inappropriate. Because it raises the question about, you know, has he used his power inappropriately? And that there is, you know, somewhat of a, oh, a clear power imbalance when you're a minister. And that, and that person's working in the public sector for an agency you know, that, that reports to you. Um, yeah, so the, the Prime Minister didn't um, have too many options. And I guess when you're seeing MPs sort of resign and, and leave for uh, um, poor behaviour repeatedly in recent weeks, I mean, yeah, 
there was only one outcome from Mr. Um, Lee's Galloway. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, and um, there was more scandal this week with Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters. He fell into a bit of strife earlier in the week um, where he allegedly took two friends on a taxpayers-funded trip to Antarctica. What's to make of this situation, and do you think we've heard the end of it? Oh, yeah, yeah scandal always only um, doesn't seem to be too far um, behind the Deputy Prime Minister. Now, this, this is a really interesting issue. So, um, it, it, you know, and it's not allegedly, he definitely arranged for two of his um, family friends, friends of um, himself and his partner, Jan Trotman, um, to travel down on a um, Air Force flight down to Antarctica. And as we saw, it was Radio New Zealand that broke the story earlier this week. Um, Antarctica, New Zealand, they were really you know, uncomfortable with um, Mr Peter's office sort of insisting mm. that, the, that two people went down because they normally only reserved one seat on this flight. Normally it's full of you know, uh, scientists and and other experts that they need to get down to the um, down to the continent there, you know. And, and Mr. Peter's office was insisting that these two women that he, um, you know, was family friends with went. Eventually, they made space for them. But you know, yeah, it's clearly um, the deputy prime minister, you know, getting favours for friends. Yeah, it's quite inappropriate. Um, and the prime minister this week, you know, when she was asked about it, she said, "Oh, you know, you know I'm going to talk to Mr. Peters about this and seek some further information." And Mr. Peters, of course, he turned around and said, look, you know, we're desperately short of money for our um, mission down in Antarctica. He, he was hoping, I think, that this, uh, his friends who are quite wealthy might end up making, um, you know, some sort of donation towards that project. That was his, his response. But, yeah, I think um, we saw both the National Party and ACT really, um, you know, targeting um, Mr. Peters over that um, this week in Parliament. And I think there will be more to come. Absolutely. Hey, and um, aside from all the tabloid news that was going on, there were a couple of large infrastructure packages announced by Labour and National this week, um, one in Taranaki and the other in the Wairarapa. If they go ahead, how do you think they'll benefit the community? Yeah, well, we've seen, um, you know, Judith Collins really hit the ground running in terms of sort of, uh, you know, announcing their plan for, um, you know, highways and, and roading improvements um, around the country since she's, since she took over and it was something we didn't really see with Todd Muller but I think we're going to see more of this um, ramping up um, obviously you know National and Labour um, announcing more and more policies uh, as we head towards the election Yeah absolutely Hey and is there any other news that um, we may have missed this week that yeah, potentially got overshadowed by everything else that was going on? <laughs> yeah I mean it's very interesting times isn't it? Well Parliament's under urgency Right, and they're, um, they're sort of trying to rush things through. I think the lockdown and the coronavirus didn't, re- didn't really uh, help in terms of the government trying to get, you know, its legislation through this term. So mm. politicians, they're still sitting here this morning. Um, they're having to stay a day later here in, in Wellington, just as the government tries to sort of ram through a lot of different legislation before we uh, break for the um, election campaign. And we've only got another two weeks. Uh, until basically they stop um, coming to Parliament and everyone sort of hits the road um, going around the country trying to get votes for their parties. And that's us for this week. Thanks to New Zealand Green Party co-leader James Shaw and One News political reporter Benedict Collins for joining us. Be sure to stay with us in the lead-up to September's general election. We'll see you next week here on the No Filter Podcast. This was produced by students at the New Zealand Broadcasting School.